0: You are listening to The 21st Folio, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. The podcast is a subsidiary of The 7th Row, an online publication dedicated to interdisciplinary film and theater criticism. You can find us on Twitter at seventh row with the number 7 spelled out, or online at 7th-row.com. That's S-E-V-E-N-T-H-row.com.
1: is this okay is this yeah, yeah.
0: yeah go for yeah.
1: it I just to. I'm curious about what people thought about the treatment of music on the stage versus the screen
2: I thought that both productions used it really effectively but the music in the stage show I think was just really really compelling um and I think it's different because of course it's like the music in the stage show Everyone can hear it, uh, whereas in the film, it's it doesn't. It's not like we imagine that the characters can hear the score. Whereas the integration of the music into the stage show was fantastic, and it was just it was beautiful the way the way everyone got involved. I mean, not just at the end with the dance. Um, or I think did they open the second act with a song? I can't remember. Yeah, I
1: think but it ended,
2: yeah. Um, yeah. But like, there's a bit where I think it's during the drunken reveling scene when um, uh, Sir Toby and Feste and Sir Andrew are all singing, and it's beautiful. They're all harmonizing fantastically with each other in that gorgeous, old-fashioned, uh, sort of 16th century style music, and and it also felt like the band themselves were kind of there. They were a part of it. And yeah, it was great. It was one of the best parts of the production for me was the the way they did the music.
0: I think one of the interesting things here is that when you have feste singing in the film, you get back into the sort of willing suspension of disbelief that's required in a musical where it's like, people just break out into song. Whereas when yeah. it's on stage, you're like, yeah, sure, people do just break out into song. <laughs> um, but on film, like, you have to have much more elaborate excuses or just... Or just hope that the audience is going to go with it in a way that you could just, people just break out into song on stage and you're like, sure, why not? And nobody really talks about the fact that people are breaking out into song. I will say that I found the score at the beginning, especially of the Nun film, like one of those mallet stroke moments that, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> using the film up. like, I know there are people who think that the Kenneth Branagh Much Do About Nothing has a score that is way too on the nose, but I think it is incredibly subtle by comparison. Oh hmm. uh, like the the Illyrian soldier theme that
2: goes through yeah. that. <laughs> 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 yeah, definitely not subtle.
3: <laughs> Part of me feels like that's just scoring in the nineties. I don't know if that's fair or not, but <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's interesting to me in the film that. There are characters. I mean, characters communicate in music. You have Cesario or Viola, who she's like, I can work for him because I can, I can sing, I can play music. And we we meet her playing the piano in the prologue. We meet uh, Sir Toby can play the piano. Sir Toby and and Feste have like a duet on the piano, which is neat. The music just seems so important to that to that play. Um, I mean, the it's film. the
0: opening line.
1: If music be the food of love. Yeah. It's the second yeah. word of the play is music. It's great there. <laughs> um, but in the, in the, the globe version, it just seems like music is there to move us from scene to scene. Like when I hear music, I'm like, Oh, the scene is over. Like when I nodded off, it was like, Oh, oh I'm back. <laughs> um, not that I did per se, but no. <laughs> if I were to have nodded off, uh, the music was like, wake up, new scene Didn't like that, here we go That's
0: sort of funny because when I was hearing the music And the Globe, I was thinking, oh, Shakespeare wrote It's kind of nice how Shakespeare kind of just Stealthily wrote a musical in there
3: <laughs> Yeah, I, I, I connected it with the original practices Of the production as well And it made me sort of muse about The role of entertainment and the theater In Shakespeare's time And how it's sort of, uh, all your entertainment in one Like, you don't you don't go to a to an <laughs> concert, no Come to the theater, you'll get a show, you'll get a song and a dance too.
0: Maybe a bear. I think one of the issues about Shakespeare on film and also recorded theater is a question about becoming dated and how we interpret it. Because, of course, with a stage production, we know that this is a product of 2012. And I don't know, there's an interesting question of whether are we still going to be watching it in 60 years. And with a film, does it become dated more quickly or less quickly. Like, I don't know, I just don't want to watch the Laurence Olivier films. They just seem like dated and and horrifying to me to like even start. But then that's why, you know, Peter Hall didn't want or sorry, not Peter Hall. Peter Brook didn't want his he's is doesn't want any of his productions recorded and is glad that like his Midsummer Night's Dream was never recorded and I would kill to get to see that. So I'm just sort of wondering what you think about how these things get dated, how they're products of their time, and are the you know, do you think that Twelfth Night is going to be this sort of thing like a and Rogers movies that we're still watching them 100 years later? Or do you think that it's going to be, like, people are going to dread them the way I am now dreading, for watching Lawrence Olivier's Henry V?
3: I think people will dread them, <laughs> just <laughs> judging these productions on there. Like, films are not of all time, but of an age, right? And there's very few, like, it's the strength of, you know, I guess primarily directorial vision, but can also be carried by like strong performances that can make, I guess, some films timeless in a way that I mean, it's all the unconscious decisions or choices or whatever the fads are. I think of maybe an era of filming where it just carries on like, I don't know, I, I mean, it was just Helena Bonham Carter in it, but this film immediately brought to mind the like creative sensibilities of a room with a view. And, yeah.
0: yeah. I mean, I think it's different with film adaptations versus, like, you know, they've remade Little Women three times, and that each time it's been a product of its time. And when you do a Shakespeare play, you're trying to make it, because it, it wasn't written in the time of cinema, right? It was written hundreds of years before. And so every time you put it on, you try and make it present and make it a product of that time. And does that then cre- make it, date it in a way that, well, Casablanca is a film of its time, but we'll probably still be watching it in a hundred years. I think Cause Casablanca is not a reinterpretation of a text in order to fit a time. It's about that time made around that time.
1: I think the danger with both of these films is that they don't make strong enough choices about the time that they're set in to be mm-hmm. relevant in a hundred years. If they set this in 2000, if this is a production that was shot in 96, uh, or a production in 2012 and a film in 96, But the film was about the past and the production was about the past. So they don't really offer anything to the cultural dialogue that matters. They're entertaining, they're beautiful, but I don't go, oh wow, that's a that's a snapshot of who we were in the late 90s, early 2000s that matters enough to me to, to be talking about in 100 years. If I'm alive, I'll watch them but i don't think that <laughs> that we will be talking about it um unfortunately but hopefully there will be a better 12th night by then or a different 12th night that does capture the the you know shakespeare was the soul of his age right i don't think either of these films or productions are the soul of their age
3: so I and, and uh, just just on that note, you make a really interesting point because i think like baz lerman's romeo and juliet seems to meet your criteria right like it's, that might it's yeah, yeah choices. i think so
0: I think so. It's very much a film of the '90s about the '90s.
1: Right. I would I would think that that would survive.
0: But then, what about like the Branagh Much Ado About Nothing? Because it's in a very vague time period. It's like not even oh, an yeah. obvious time period the way these Twelfth Nights are. Like right. they're not our time period, but they're an obvious time period. Whereas the yeah. Branagh or the Branagh Much Ado is set in question mark. But right. then, are we yeah. ever going to have like another Emma Thompson? Beatrice. I mean, there will be other Beatrices, but...
1: Right. No, that that I don't think that'll be talked about either. Unfortunately, it's a great, great movie. Yeah. Great, great, stunning performances, but again, it doesn't say anything about the time.
2: See, it's interesting because, whether or not that's true, I really also don't think that the Weed in Much Do About Nothing is going to be talked about in 100 years.
1: Oh,
2: no. Um, no. <laughs> I mean, despite it... Yeah, I, despite its, its setting in, well, now-ish, like it's pretty clearly set yeah. in, in a world at least where you can watch a video of someone getting arrested on a, on a phone. Um, but then maybe that's, again, just because even though it, it had a clear setting in a, in a modern world, it didn't actually have anything to say about our world right now. It was just the setting. Um, so, yeah, and also just the fact that I just don't, think it's that great. But
0: <laughs> that's a whole other four hours. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I both have major problems with that with that film. But I know that that the Whedon film usurped the place in a lot of people's hearts that Bran's film had for, you know, 20 years. And I wonder if part of that is just because they were like, oh well this is my time. There are cell phones.
2: Yeah. And I think maybe it had more to say about the Whedon verse, like, because it was, it was absolutely Whedon asks his friends around to do this thing. Maybe it just for, for people who love his work, maybe it was, it had that same kind of sense of joy and, um, and just people working together who work really well together that Brenner's does for a different group of actors who work together a lot. But if you're not, so completely embedded in the Weedonverse, which actually I, I probably consider myself to be quite embedded. But um, Yeah,
0: oh, I am too, but I, it didn't matter. I, like Even yeah. though it's like happy ending angel fan fiction, whatever, I don't yeah. care.
2: <laughs> I don't know. Maybe, I mean, because I remember watching it in the movie theater when it first came out and being really enjoying it, and then watching it again for the podcast, I had a completely different take. So maybe it was just sitting down, thinking about it as a piece of Shakespeare rather than as, oh my God, that's Clark Gregg and Nathan Fillion and like everyone else in the
3: same movie that changed it. Yeah. Now you've got me thinking about like the, so immediacy is the word I'm like mulling on and theater by its very nature has an immediacy that you can sort of relate and connect to as an audience member that I'm wondering how it, how it happens in the film world where you know, certain performances might seem less vivid, less vivid or immediate when they don't speak to the particulars of an age. Uh, these are very loose thoughts. And does anyone have anything intelligent to say?
1: Intelligent is an idea. <laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> I love where that was going.
1: I'm with you on that. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. I, mean, I want to know what that. I don't, I don't know. if uh, We discussed this all fair i suppose prior to recording this but i'm not a film guy i don't know anything about film and i want to know what that is i want i want to know i want to see a film that grabs me in the same way that getting kicked by accident by an actor grabs me like i don't know what that is i don't think it's 3d <laughs> i, don't,
0: I, don't, I just think all. part of it though is being able to watch it over and over and over and over again i think that's part of what film is for me that part of why I love the brand i Much not to do about nothing is because I've seen it hundreds of times and you just get to, it's like an old friend. And mm-hmm. at the same time, because you get to watch it over and over and over again, you can put all kinds of like subtle things in that, you know, I didn't notice the first time I didn't notice the second time. I didn't notice the 10th time, but I noticed the 20th time and okay. great movies. I mean, obviously you see different things when you see a, a theater production over and over again, but you also see different things because it's different each night? I don't know that I have a really good answer for you because I grew up on both like I'm a kid of the theater I went to like every single theater camp you could possibly do I was putting on plays when I was five and like organizing my classmates and getting them away from soccer practice to do this like that was my childhood (laughs) but I also grew up on movies like I we got a laser disc player because I wore out the tape, the VHS of Singing in the Rain I watched it so many times Um, and like watching Siskel and Ebert at the movies was like a, a weekend ritual. So I really grew up, grew up on both of them, even though like as an actor, like a person doing it I was always much more within the theater as opposed to within film. I went through a very brief period where I thought about doing like screen acting and just like disappeared very quickly also. Um, <laughs> so, and I feel like if I lived in London or New, well, or New York and like I had money, I could very easily, especially London, I would just like If I lived in London, I might just stop going to movies and just go to the theater. But there's also, I think at this point, there's a really interesting connection between film and theater and that you can't really understand film without being aware of theater. And And to some degree, you can't understand theater without being, maybe less so because it's an older form, without being aware of film, that they're both informing one another and that you get things from film that are being imported into theater and things from theater that are being imported into film. And you especially get this now because you have a lot of theater directors who work in both and you have a lot of actors who do both. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's a complicated, it's a difficult question. I think the other thing too, is that just talking about recorded theater is that part of the way people see theater is in the context of all the other productions that they've seen And if you've missed certain productions, you become, you, like, are no longer part of the conversation in a way. Like, a Hamlet cannot open in London at this point without the review being like, well, in the Trevor Nunn Hamlet starring Ben Wishaw." Like, you literally cannot do Hamlet without somebody saying that. And the fact that I haven't seen it, I feel like I'm missing out on this huge conversation. There is a recording. I'm going to watch it in June. But... um, but I didn't know that for like a long time. And then even just knowing it, I still feel like I've missed out on it. And I'm so glad that I'm going to finally get to see it, even though the recording is probably mediocre because it wasn't really intended for an audience. It was intended for research purposes. But if you aren't part of that, then you don't necessarily know what's gone on. And I think something that I realized is we have a, the same sort of thing in Toronto and in Canada is that the Stratford Festival really looms large. And and I discovered when i like, you know, Grew up and went to university. That like my all my other friends who were into theater, they'd seen the same productions, and it was like the first time in my life that it was like, oh, you saw that Cabaret too, and you could have this discussion. Where then the next time you saw Cabaret, or the next time you saw Twelfth Night, or whatever, then everybody had seen all the productions, and you could have that discussion. And I think that's something that exists in the UK, in partly in part because it's a tiny country, and London is such a big theater town that not only does do people in London see everything, but people outside of London see everything and it's less true i think in the u.s because broadway is so outrageously expensive and the tourists like go see cats um based on
1: shakespeare (laughs) you didn't know that oh that's the next episode (laughs)
0: um and so somehow having access to these older productions is part of being part of that conversation even though you're not really seeing it it's it's like i don't know it's kind of weird because i'm not sure that you know if we saw the would we feel the same way about the peter broke midsummer night's dream if there was a recording and we actually saw it and we and we could all be like oh god that's so you know 50 years ago and then we would, you know, whatever, complain about the hairstyles. Whereas now we're like, the Peter Brook made some nice dream. If only we had seen it. Or but, I have a friend who saw it and I want to kill her, et cetera. What
1: if you had seen it now and then you'd be like, oh, that was it? Because like, I agree with you. I would, I would kill people to see that production. But only because I know I can't yeah <laughs> but if i've seen it, it might
0: be a bit like what it might be a bit like reading dune after like being indoctrinated in like science fiction for years <laughs> you know like by the time i yeah. read dune, like it was like yeah i know where this is going yeah i've i've read this story many times yeah. but i've seen this story many times but it wasn't like because dune was unoriginal it's because everybody copied dune for 30 years
3: right. when it, in like an entirely different vein of figure skating Um, the, uh, 1982, uh, and Dean Bolero is like legendary and people always talk about it and reference it. And it's the only figure skating performance that anyone in the United Kingdom knows. Um, and I finally watched it on YouTube a couple of years ago and I was shockingly underwhelmed. Uh, like the, in in (laughs) terms of watches it, like compared to ice dancing today, uh, it's cross cuts and lines and lifts and that's literally it. Uh, and so compared to the technical difficult, like it's just the sport is in such a different place now. Right. Uh, this and the styles have changed so much that that was revolutionary at the time. But compared to the different tack people take now, it, yeah, it, it no longer holds the same power I think it did then. And, and part of me feels like probably, you know, acting is similar, which is one of the challenges of film that with a, with a film like a, you know, a, a classic film, there's a certain appreciation and respect for what it is then. But, you know one of the reasons the Olivier Hamler or Shakespeare's are probably a little more insufferable today it's less to do with the filming and more that like the the style of performance as they were delivering it then registers less with us as an audience today
0: Yeah for
2: sure yeah. I think we found that with the um DiCaprio Romeo and Juliet as well the uh, the acting style just didn't it just didn't feel as uh, yeah it just it felt dated and weird and too old fashioned and kind of very muted.
0: Yeah. Oh, and it's interesting what the shelf life is for these things it's because when I first saw the Zeffirelli, I would have been probably thirteen or fourteen. So we studied it in high school. Not the film, we studied the play. And I saw it then. And it didn't feel so weird and dated to me. And Noemi was saying on our other episode that, you know, she really liked it. I don't know when she last saw it. Um, but we all watched it again and really and, you know, had major problems with it. So I mean I don't know. It's interesting. Like It was still probably fine in the 80s, but it's not so much anymore. On the other hand, you can't understand the Baz Luhrmann film without having seen the Zeffirelli because he steals from it so much. Imagine if we didn't have that as a document. We might not know how much Baz Luhrmann was stealing from it.
3: (laughs) Do you think it's possible to create a timeless Shakespeare film? My my gut impulse is
1: no. But it's a word that I hate. So...
3: (laughs) (laughs)
2: I think we'll need no, another couple of years to answer that. Like, I think film hasn't been around for long enough. <laughs> timeless? I don't know. I mean, the right now, um, Brenna's Much Ado feels timeless to me, but that's it's not even that old. So,
0: yeah, it's only twenty years old, a little over twenty mm-hmm. years old. Yeah, I don't know. It's 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 tough because I've also seen people like. I don't know why everybody got really – I guess because it's like Shakespeare 400. A lot of people are just watching um, Olivier's Richard Third for the first time. And they were all like, oh, wow, I can't believe it's funny. And this is so great. And I still haven't seen it. But I was kind of surprised that that's where people went as opposed to like when I was like, oh, I need to educate myself on Richard the third, I watched the Ian McKellen one. It's the new one. Right. And, right. you know, assuming the Benedict Cumberbatch batch one doesn't suck. <laughs> That's <laughs> <beginning>. <laughs> Maybe that's going to be the reference point for people in the future because they'll be like, well, the Ian McCallum one
3: is 20 years old. I'm personally waiting for the Zac Afron Richard III. <laughs>
0: <laughs> what?
3: It could happen. That was the joke. It could happen. Zac, if you're listening, let's talk. Are you available?
1: Yeah, it's hard because I don't know how you do something. I don't think it could possibly possibly seek out to be like i'm gonna make a timeless shakespeare piece because if you seek out with that as your intention you're already screwed so it just has to sort of happen naturally but i don't know how i don't know i don't know how that could happen because the storytelling is just evolving and that's a great thing like could you imagine doing richard the Third as a snapchat story like Shakespeare would be like he'd be although
0: pretty, actually kind of good. I was gonna say, have you have you seen Mallory ortberg's um text from Jane Eyre? I have not. <laughs> she does King Lear's text messages and it's amazing. Uh, <laughs> he texts his daughters and goes, "Who wants a kingdom?" <laughs> and then they go, "I do." And then he says, "Okay, how much do you love me?" And then they're like, "Oh, so much." And then there's like a long thing about. Goneril and Regan stealing Edward's phone and Edmund's phone. Sorry,
1: but that's reimagining a story already written.
0: Yeah, suppose,
3: yeah, yeah. Right? right. So could you?
1: <laughs> I suppose. I mean, I suppose
3: but same. I mean, like, like part of me. What I love about Shakespeare is is less. I I, I love the ability to see different productions of it and see all the different things that are brought and changed. And so I guess to me, that's one of the reasons why it'd be hard to sort of have a an iconic or like one standalone. Production. I mean, it. Yeah. You know, seeing seeing one production of, I mean, I guess that's the theater in general. But well, you know, you see one production, and you know, sometimes maybe you're like, okay, that's that's good. I'm satisfied with that. Uh, but with Shakespeare, it's it's a desire to go and see other people's interpretations of uh, of the text.
0: Well, see that now. That's an interesting question because I wonder if that's a good argument for why you should make more films. Because I think the fact that you don't necessarily have multiple films of any given play is people have seen just one, and then. And that was true for me for a lot of plays because, you know, some just aren't performed that often and it's not easy to see them. And so you end up say, thinking, oh, this is the definitive Henry V, but this is the definitive much to do by nothing. And then if you see five of them, right. then it's like, well, and if you see five good ones, like not five shit ones, but five mm-hmm. good ones, then you're like, well, I don't even know which is the right Hamlet. Or, I, don't, I don't even know where to be or not to be belongs. And <laughs>
1: It belongs where Shakespeare put it
0: (laughs) Where did Shakespeare put it He had more than one place for it That's fair Um, Not
1: top of the show I'll tell you that much
3: (laughs) Truth Um,
0: (laughs) And and so The more films you make then the more accessible it becomes To people although equally the more Theater productions you record the more accessible it Becomes to people but then The challenge with film is that you're immediately Going to be compared to the other films in a way that you aren't. Well, everybody's comparing Hamlet in London to Ben Whishaw's Hamlet, but in a way that there's like so many theater productions that you'll you know you'll be compared to the last two or three or you know. But people aren't really comparing people to like John Gilgood still or Lawrence Olivier on stage still. They might be comparing to Mark Rylance or Simon Russell Beale. Um, but you know we have our in a way that we're still comparing. Films to Lawrence Olivier's
1: film. It's so hard because I feel like comparison implies competition, which just feels anti-artistic to me. Yeah, because it's like I could probably shoot Citizen Kane on my iPhone right now and make it really good, maybe better, better in air quotes than Citizen Kane. But the Citizen Kane is so much more important than anything I could ever do. (laughs) Like it's about the time that you're in. You know, so I don't know. It just feels it's so fun to talk about, but it's also like, but why, why, why compare? Why, why not just reflect on? That's why I I really have enjoyed this conversation. Has been talking about these two productions as they are in relation to each other, but not being like this one is better than because blank. Like that's it's. We're not. This isn't theater. Isn't a sport. Yeah. Not you know two points versus one (laughs) point. Like they won, Trevor right. Nunn won two to one against <laughs> Tim Carroll.
0: Well, well, that's because in in the film world, you think of these things as remakes. You know, right. like not that really we're thinking of like Henry the Fifth remake, but like if they do another, you know, Ocean's Eleven was a remake of Ocean's Eleven, right. and that when you make a film, it's it's like this definitive text, right? There's only one version of it, or, you know, there might be a director's cut and whatever, but there's essentially one version of it. Whereas with theater, you know, plays are designed, if they're written well, to be done over and over and over and over again. And theater going audiences are like, I'm never bored of seeing Cat on the Hot Tin Roof. Like I will see 20 of those. And if they made 20 films, I would watch them too, if they were like decent. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) But but film doors are like, well, I've seen that story. To the point that they're even like, well, I've now seen High Rise the movie. I don't need to read High Rise the book, even though it's like a terrible adaptation. And that happens a lot with books. Is like, well, I've seen the movie. Right. I don't need to read the book. But if you see a play, it's like, well, I still need to see, you know, the greats anyway. You want to see them over and over and over again. You don't necessarily need to see, you know, certain plays over and over
3: and over again.
1: Although it's not a bad thing to see them all. I'll see, I'll see it again. I'll see it.
3: I'll see another 12th night tomorrow, probably. I'm ready. Yeah, yeah I mean, <laughs> after this conversation, I want to rewatch both films. <laughs>
0: right? Is <laughs> right? okay. that it? I think that's it. Well, that's the end of this episode on 12th night, uh, the Globe Theater production from 2012 that was recorded and the Trevor Nunn film. I'm Alex Heaney, the Editor-in-Chief of The Seventh Row and the host of this podcast, 21st Folio. You can find me on Twitter at B-West Synast, That's B-W-E-S-T-C-I-N-E-A-S-T-E. My guests today are Caitlin Merriman.
2: Hi, I'm Caitlin Merriman. You can find me on Twitter at Caitlin Snark, C-A-I-T-L-I-N-S-N-A-R-K.
3: And Craig? I'm Craig Rutan, a theater enthusiast, on Twitter at C-R-U-T, C-R-U-T.
0: And Dan?
1: I am on Twitter at Dan Bonos, D-A-N-B-E-A-U-K-N-O-W-S.
0: And you can find us all on Twitter at 21stfolio. That's 21stfolio. You can find Dan on his podcast at No Holds Barred Cast. That's that's the Twitter handle, yes? That's correct. And you can also find we've got a new website running, finally. It's 21stfolio.com, 21stfolio.com. Uh, where you can find all the episodes and uh, with long show notes and information about all of our guests. Yeah, thanks, thanks everybody. Thanks for Thank you. having me on
1: Tough yeah. Talk, talk thanks, Night. This man. was fun.
0: And that's the end of this episode of the Twenty First Folio. Back next week for a new episode discussing new Shakespeare productions. To keep up with the latest episodes, don't forget to subscribe to the 21st Folio podcast on iTunes. For show notes and more information about the podcast, please visit seventh row.com. That's S E V E N T H row.com.